Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Soul Food, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. According to a radio report, a middle school in Oregon faced a unique problem. A number of girls began to use lipstick and put it on the bathroom mirror. The problem was, after they put on that lipstick, it was leaving dozens of little lip prints. Finally, the principal decided that something had to be done. She called the girls into the bathroom to meet there with the custodian. She explained that the lip prints caused a major problem for the custodian, who had to clean them off every day. To demonstrate how difficult this was, she asked the custodian to clean one of the mirrors. He took out a long-handled brush, dipped it in the toilet, and then scrubbed the mirror. (laughs) Since then, there have been no lip prints on the mirrors. You know, when tempted to sin, if we could only see the real filth that we would be kissing, we also wouldn't be so attracted to it. Last week we saw the failure of King Solomon when he was old and we talked about what constitutes a failure in a human life. Basically, basically it came down to that to love the Lord, with all your, the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might is to fail in doing that. That is the first and most fundamental requirement of a human life. And sadly, that is what Solomon did. In the passage that is before us now, we will hear about the terrible consequences of King Solomon's failure. Look at verse 5 with me. For Solomon became a follower of Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and of Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not follow the Lord fully as his father David had done. Verse 5 says, Solomon followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, or your translation may say Molech, which is the same false god, the abomination of the Ammonites. The Bible cannot hide its disgust. Milcom was not, in its view, just the god of the Ammonites, but the abomination 
of the Ammonites. The word expresses the strongest revulsion and disgust. These were two of the pagan gods that Solomon has decided to worship. Now verse 7 is going to add Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, to the list. And verse 8 suggests that there were other gods also to boot. Now if you're not familiar with these pagan gods, understand that they were the worst of the worst in terms of their practices and their adherence. Ashtoreth, for example, was the goddess of fertility, the female counterpart of Baal, and she was worshipped with sex acts. Moloch and Chemos, who seem to have been related, had an insatiable thirst for blood, supposedly delighting when parents would sacrifice their children to them. That Solomon would even allow the worship of these detestable false gods anywhere in the kingdom is terrible. That he would participate in that worship is unthinkable. But that is exactly what happened. In case you missed it, verse 5 says he followed these gods. That means he just didn't allow his wives to come toting their little figurines into the palace. He just didn't tolerate their behind-the-doors rituals. No, he actually participated. That in itself makes him a first-class, grade-A fool. But even that's not all that there is to say on the subject. One additional fact that is often overlooked stretches the limits of reasons almost to the breaking point, which I mentioned last week. Solomon is worshiping the gods of the nations that Israel has already conquered. Now think about that. You've gone to war. You fought an enemy that prayed to its God for victory. You've defeated that enemy and shown their God to be impotent. And now you're going to bow down and worship that impotent, defeated God? Really? The conclusion I've come to is that no one really understands why things like this happen. It's like trying to explain the Kardashians or Brussels sprouts. The Ashtoreth, along with the Bells, have been an enticement to the people of Israel since their early days in the land of Canaan and up until the days of Samuel. The appeal of these male and female gods probably had to do with the fertility of land and livestock. However, under Samuel's influence, they had been put away and not appeared back again in Israel through the reigns of Saul, David, and Solomon until now, in Solomon's old age. The King Solomon returned to the unfaithfulness of earlier days suggests a massive failure. And in many ways, it was the complete undoing of all that had been accomplished through his monarchy. And it highlights to me, in neon flashing colors, the importance for us to finish well. It reminds me that it is entirely possible to completely tarnish a reputation built up over an entire lifetime with just one stupid decision. I hope you guys pray for me. I really do. 
I would rather God take me home before I would permanently mar His work in my life. Now, I'm not asking you to pray, Oh, Lord, kill him. (laughs) Which may disappoint some of you. But I am asking that you pray that I don't go off the rails in any way. Solomon's wicked folly is familiar because the sins that he committed are equally common to us today. We are living in a sex-crazed society where the seductions of sin are always on display. Looking for intimacy, people in the church are often tempted to do what Solomon did and have a relationship with someone who does not even believe in the God of the Bible. Rather than worshiping the only true God, people may worship many false gods such as money and pleasure, work and leisure, self and sexuality. And really, if you think about it, in a myriad of ways, Solomon seems just like the king for these postmodern times that we live in. His sins are still very much with us, which means that we may all be in danger of a tragic downfall. Then there were also the royal commands that Solomon broke. What do I mean? God specifically told the kings of Israel not to build up a cavalry or accumulate excessive amounts of silver and gold. But Solomon purchased tens of thousands of horses and chariots, many directly from Egypt, which God had expressly forbidden. The king also gathered vast treasuries of silver and gold. And you know what the crazy thing is? The glories of Solomon's kingdom eventually became his downfall. Little by little, he kept making the wrong spiritual choices until at the very end, he was completely bankrupt. Now, some people are surprised when they find out that Solomon came to such a bad end, but the details in this story clearly foreshadow his downfall. Really, Solomon's life was kind of like a tower of blocks. With each tragic and sinful choice, he was pulling another block out of the structure of his existence. But the frightening thing is, concerning that, is that for a long time, his life still seemed solid, well, at least from the outside. But the king, in reality, was getting weaker and weaker until he finally collapsed in a heap of ungodly sins. So make no mistake about it. It was not just at the end that Solomon made the wrong wrong choice. He was making wrong choices all the way along. His story thus gives us, in one commentator's words, a picture of the gradual acquiescence with evil. Verse 7, please. And Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abhorrent idol of Moab, on the mountain that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abhorrent idol of the sons of Ammon. He also did the same for all his foreign wives, who burn incense and sacrifice to their gods. We'll find out later on in the Bible that the place where these pagan altars were built would become to be known as the Hill of Corruption. It lasted until it was destroyed by King Josiah 300 years later. 
But Solomon's sin did not stop at toleration or sponsorship. He actually bowed down and worshipped to false gods, offering sacrifices to them. His heart by now has been turned after other gods. And since the worship of most of these gods, as I've said, was associated with sensuality and immorality, it seems clear that they appealed to something in Solomon's fallen heart. The only way Solomon could do what he did is that he had to adjust his view of who God was. What I mean is, he did not abandon the worship of the Lord. I'm sure he continued to patronize the temple and probably did many things in God's name. But the God that he now served was in reality a lesser God. You see, Solomon adjusted his view of the God of glory downward to accommodate his new lifestyle. As we are told, he did not follow the Lord completely as his father David had done. Unfortunately, Solomon was the first in a long line of kings in Israel and Judah of whom it would be said, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So no matter how successful Solomon appeared, this is the epitaph of ultimate failure in the part of life that matters the most. Solomon, the builder of so many fine and important buildings, particularly the house for the name of the Lord, in his old age built places for these disgusting gods. Now the seeds of this started earlier, in fact about 40 years earlier. Apparently at the same time that Solomon was building a palace for his pagan wife, he was also building an altar to the living God. This is a classic sin manager technique. Like a magician who distracts you with one hand while he does a trick with the other, a sin manager involves himself in religious activity to draw your attention away from his sin. Even King David used this tool. After sleeping with Bathsheba and impregnating her, he launched a, he launched a heartless conspiracy to have her husband killed. And one of the ways he covered his tracks was by continuing on with his religious sacrifices and prayers as if nothing was wrong. This is why I'm no longer ever surprised when someone in a church gets caught in a scandal. Even someone prominent like an elder or a pastor or a staff member. You see, if you've made a commitment to sin management, it is imperative that you keep up the illusion of your faithfulness to God. It is critical that you keep going to church and serving like someone who's not harboring this dark little secret. Really, sometimes sin managers seem even more impassioned about their religion than they were before. Not because they actually are, but because they need that they feel like they need to deflect attention away from what's really going on in their lives. In our text today, this has finally come to fruition. This appalling situation could be summed up in the words of Jeremiah 2.11, which reads, Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? 
But my people have changed their glory for that which is not even profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked and be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. And where did he build these places? Verse 7 says he built it on the mountain that is east of Jerusalem. Do you know where that is? You've probably heard of it. On the night before his crucifixion, Jesus went there to pray. And one day he's going to return and split it in half. The mountain east of Jerusalem is the Mount of Olives, which stands directly opposite the temple. Thus, Solomon practiced the grotesque and damnable rites of pagan worship within the plain sight of God's holy temple. Solomon actually came to believe it was a good idea to build altars to the pagan god on the Mount of Olives. Really, Solomon? Are you serious? Imagine the mental gymnastics required to rationalize that little project. But he pulled it off. He did the double backflip and stuck the landing. And how did he accomplish that? Because he had help. It was Satan whispering in his ear through every flip and cartwheel. Once again, I used to be surprised at the crazy ideas otherwise intelligent people get into their heads. But not anymore. And so it is that people feel that it's safe to ignore God's warnings. With Satan's help, they convince themselves that God is not the cosmic party pooper that we preachers have made him out to be. And instead, he is in fact all about chocolate candy and bunny slippers and group hugs. He's our big buddy in the sky. Joel Olstein says all he wants for us to be is happy. Allow me to introduce to you the real God. He speaks about this business of warnings and how his people react to them in Malachi 2.2. Listen to this paraphrase that absolutely nails this. This is the Lord speaking. Listen to me and make up your minds to honor my name, says the Lord of heaven's armies, or I will bring a terrible curse against you. I will even curse the blessings you receive. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you have not taken my warning to heart. I will punish your descendants and splatter your faces with manure from your festival sacrifices, and I will then throw you on the manure pile. Then at last you will know it was I who sent you this warning so that my covenant with the Levites can continue, says the Lord of heaven's armies. All I'm saying is God is far more concerned about us being holy than he is about us being happy. But of course, the great thing is, if we are holy, then we will have more than happiness, which can be fleeting. Indeed, we can be joyful, which is better by far. Not only that, if there is one thing you do not want on your to-do list, it is to make God Almighty angry with you. Look at verse 9 with me. 
Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, and had commanded him regarding this thing that he was not to follow other gods, but he did not comply with what the Lord had commanded. Thumb through the Bible, and you'll see that all of God's warnings are specific, which is something we should appreciate, because being specific is not all that common in our world anymore. We are often forced to stagger and grope through the fog of ambiguity as we search for answers. For example, how many conversations like the following go on every day in America? Parent, you can't do that. Teenager, why? Parent, because I said so. Teenager, but why? There has to be a reason. Parent, because I don't think it's a good idea. Teenager, but you used to do it. Parent, that's different. Teenager, why is it different? Parent, because times have changed. Teenager, what do you mean? Parent, now exasperated, look. When you get out on your own, you can do what you want. But as long as you're living under my roof, you're going to do what I say. Perhaps you can remember a day when you played the role of a teenager in that very conversation. If so, you probably remember how frustrated you felt. All you wanted was a straight answer, but all you got was cryptic responses. However, God is never cryptic when given a warning. Solomon, of all people, knew this. That his heart was turned away to these gods is a tragedy beyond description. Here's another lesson that we can learn from Solomon's mistakes, and it's that even if the greatest spiritual gifts are given us, that will not keep us from sin if our hearts have turned away after other gods. This lesson may help us to understand the mystery, mystery of Solomon's tragedy. People always ask, how could such a wise man be so foolish? If God truly did give Solomon the gift of wisdom, then why wasn't he wise enough to avoid falling into all this disgrace? The answer is, the gifts of God never operate independently or automatically, but always according to the affection of our hearts. Sadly, it was even Solomon who wrote, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. Yet in his old age, his own heart was far from the Lord. Since the discovery of circulation of the blood by William Harvey in the 17th century, everybody knows that the center of human physical life is the heart. But while it is true physically, it's also true spiritually. We're to love God with all of our hearts and receive his word into our hearts. God wants us to do his will from our hearts. Thus, if our heart is wrong towards God, our entire life is going to be wrong, no matter how successful we may appear to others. What makes Solomon's life so tragic 
is that when Solomon was born, he was greatly loved by the Lord and even given the name Jedidiah, which means loved by God. But now we read that God was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from him. Solomon is turning his back on a wealth of blessing God had given to him, and he is sinning against a flood of light. So how did this change take place? Well, it didn't happen overnight. Solomon didn't wake up one day and just decide, I'm going to stop loving God and start loving all these other idols. No, the spiritual change happened little by little, as it always does. Please remember that a small difference in trajectory can make a big difference in destination. Sin often brings with what may feel like a minor concession, maybe an allowance for this shortcoming or a brief indulgence for that desire. But that simple change of trajectory can lead us on a course to a deadly destination. All the way through Solomon's story, we have seen warning signs of this impending tragedy. The king was headed on the wrong spiritual trajectory. It all began way back 40 years ago when he made an alliance with Egypt of all places by marrying Pharaoh's daughter. This was one seed of his destruction, marrying outside of the faith. And so, when our hearts turn away from God, our spiritual gifts will not prevent us from falling into many kinds of grievous sins. Solomon's wisdom did not keep him holy, nor did the temple he built keep him from idolatry. The Bible says in verse 6 that Solomon ended up doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's crazy, isn't it? The same man who was wise enough to build a house for God was so foolish that he ended up building pagan places for deities. But please listen to me this morning. There is no telling what a man or a woman can do when his or her heart turns away from the living God. Let's learn from Solomon's mistake and apply this lesson to our own lives. Our spiritual gifts will not keep us away from sin if we have a heart that is turning away from God. Mastering theology, pastoring, serving the poor, giving to Christian work, teaching in the churches, being a missionary, none of these gifts will protect us from spiritual failure if we love the world or if we love ourselves more than we love the Lord. Doubtless, Solomon was one of the most gifted men who ever walked this earth. And so, if his wisdom cannot save him, then how will our wisdom or our gifts, if we depend on just those things, ever save us? People always seem surprised when a well-known Christian falls into sin. And I've thought about that. Perhaps that is because, and I've been guilty of this, we have been looking at their gifts instead of their hearts. Because the heart, that's the most important thing of all. And so what happens when one makes the first commandment compromise of having any other gods in our life? 
What happens is one meets the anger of the Lord. Now, this is an unpopular subject for us to consider, but we must. The anger, or to use the older word, the wrath of God, is the ultimate reality that makes human life serious. On the one hand, it is important to see that God's anger is unlike the anger we experience being human beings. With us, anger is often uncontrolled, vindictive, impulsive, and disproportionate. But if God drove a car, he would never be guilty of road rage. But our anger can often be sinful. Not so with God's anger. It is absolutely righteous, right, and thoroughly consistent with all of his goodness and other attributes. God's wrath is the proper and appropriate reaction to evil. And so difficult as it may be to us, we need to understand that it is actually good news that God is angry about evil. Think about it. Would you rather that God did not care about violence, hatred, death, destruction, cancer, war, starvation, cruelty? The list could go on and on. Really, what is so very hard for us is the fact that it is God and not us who decides what deserves his anger. And he says to fail to love the Lord with all our heart and to turn to other gods as Solomon did That deserves God's anger. Now, in fairness, God is simply following his declared policy towards those within his covenant. His anger flows out of his jealous, out of his jealousy for the supreme place that he has in people's worship and affection. And jealousy is the character of any love that is worth its salt when that love has an exclusive claim on someone. And as we said before, God is unique among ancient Near Eastern gods and goddesses. No pagan deity ever demanded exclusive worship from his or her devotees. But the anger of the biblical God bothers contemporary man, and here's the reason. Because it clearly tells him that the God of the Bible is not a pluralist. So he does not fit in with our times and our mentality. People say, why should he be so irate? Because someone like Solomon wants to spread around his liturgical devotion and to expose himself to other religious traditions. Why should he be so mad if Solomon wants to just broaden his horizons by investigating alternate forms of human spirituality? People in our time want no part of a God who has no rival. Nor do they want to face God in the flesh, who sits on a shore, peers across the fire at Peter, and assumes he has the right to keep probing us about our love for him. We can learn important lessons from the tragedy of King Solomon. The first is we start falling into sin long before we fall into disgrace. So if we wish to avoid our own tragic downfall, We need to fight against every little sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. What I want to leave with us today is the consequences of Solomon's sins were totally disastrous. They ended up dividing and destroying an entire nation. Yet they seem like such 
small sins at the beginning. A little more luxury. A little flirtation with an exotic romance. A new style of worship. Whoever expected that they would eventually lead Solomon into immorality and idolatry. So let's learn this morning from Solomon's mistake. Let us resist every little sins as though our lives depended upon it, because they do. The Puritans sometimes compared little sins as baby snakes wriggling out of the nest in that they were tiny but deadly. And if they are not put to death when they hatch, they would grow up to be huge serpents. So whenever we see the littlest sin that could turn our lives into a tragedy, we should fight against it with all the power of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Father, it is so easy to give in. All the voices around us tell us that we are Neanderthals that uh, we would even dare to think that there is such thing as an absolute truth and there is such a thing as a God who demands our obedience to Him and our love to Him. But Lord, we know that it's true. You have proven Yourself time and time again that Your way is the best way to live a human life. And so, Father, wherever we are at this morning in our relationship with You, drive these truths into our hearts let us not get away from them. That as Isaiah says, whether we would turn to the right or to the left, we would hear a voice saying, this is the way, walk in it. Help us to walk in your ways, O Lord. If we ask it in Christ's name, amen.